Take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Titus chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 10 in just a moment. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. You know, there's a phrase we use for men who are called uh, to ministry of the sort that myself, Brother Neil, have been called to, uh, called to preach. Uh, Now, pastoring a church involves much more than preaching, as we're going to talk about this morning, but preaching is certainly a primary function of those who pastor the flock of God. And... uh, It is something that we are called to work hard at. Uh, And uh, I believe that that happens around here. We work hard at preaching and teaching the Word of God. We want to be true to the Word of God, to preach the truth, to encourage the truth uh, being carried out in the lives of each one of us and you uh, as well. But you know, when you get right down to it, there's really not anybody worthy to take this word and preach it. Uh, This is God's word. And I tell you what, every time I come to this pulpit, you know, people ask me after 35 years or more, are you nervous when you come to the pulpit? And, you know, I don't know if nervous is the word. Uh, But there is a sense of awe when you open the scripture uh, and seek to convey its meaning. and, And there should be. Again, these are God's words, and God meant what he said. I think that's something that we need to be reminded of from time to time. Uh, These are not just words for us to consider. Uh, We should consider them. We should think about them. Uh, But we should believe them. We should trust them. And we should know that these are God's words, and that when he says that we should do this or do that, or that we should abstain from this or abstain from that, he meant it. And we should do it. Last week, Neil spoke concerning the requirements for elders, for for pastors. And by the way, I know Neil made this clear. I'm just going to say it again. Uh, We believe that elders and pastors are just two different words for the same position within the church. Uh, There's another word, uh, overseers. There's the word shepherd that we sometimes use. Uh, These are all words that speak of the same position within the body of Christ. They, They emphasize different roles of that position, but nonetheless, uh, elders, when you read that word in the Bible, you can think of the pastoral staff of your church. We are the elders of Calvary Hill. So this morning, I want to follow up on his message, and I want to discuss not so much the requirements for elders as, as he brought forth last week, but I want to talk about the reason for elders. Why is it that elders were such a critical aspect of the formation of the early church. I mean, that's what Paul said to Titus. I'm going to leave you here to set things in order. And the very first order of the day was to appoint elders in each of these churches so that they could instruct the congregation in sound doctrine. And of course, as as that passage ended last week, verse 9 says that the, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, <laughs> one of the less pleasant aspects 
of being a preacher of the gospel, the pastor of a church, is the confrontation of error within the church. Uh, And let me tell you, it is just as prevalent today as it was in Paul's day and as it seems to have been on the island of Crete. You know, we've talked about this mysterious island, this superstitious people, uh, and, and if you're not careful, you can kind of think that somehow the inhabitants of Crete were really not like us. This was a whole different kind of, of people. They thought differently, they acted differently, but the reality is they're just like us. Their world, very much like our world today. So teaching and preaching the word of God is hard work. But the truth is, if there's one thing that I probably would think most pastors would say to you, that's, that's the aspect of my job that I really love. I, I love studying. I love preparing. I love even standing before you and preaching the word of God. But when it comes to correcting those who are in error, man, that's miserable work. But it's also necessary work for the health and safety of the congregation. And churches need strong pastors who are willing to do that. And you know, often what happens in a church when there is a strong pastoral leadership, pastors can gain their reputation. I mean, I've heard it said, I've heard it said of my my former pastor here, You know, it was his way or the highway. I've heard those very same words said of me. It's it's hard for me to believe that anybody would say that. (laughs) You know, Brother James, it's his way or the highway. But the reality is, when your pastoral leadership sets a course, you know, Neil talked about the fact that you want a pilot who is steering the plane. You don't want a guy who doesn't know where he's going and doesn't know where he's taking you. You don't want a guy that doesn't know how to operate that aircraft. You want somebody who is in full control of that plane. and A guy that would be willing to stand up to somebody who had wrong ideas about how that plane ought to be operated and do what's right. Again, for the safety of those passengers on board, pastoral ministry is very much like that. We're called to the responsibility. Again, think of the word shepherd. What was a shepherd to do with his flock? He was to protect them, right? Night and day to make sure that they were fed. Uh, Two times in my ministry, I've had to stand in this pulpit and correct false doctrine that was preached right here in this room. Very early on, as a matter of fact, before I ever became the pastor of this church, I was was here on staff. Uh, It was a Sunday morning. We had a a guy who had formerly been on this staff. He had, he had served on the staff of this church. He had sat under the preaching and teaching of our former pastor. And he had left here and he had taken other positions and he had gotten off into, or at least we found out, he had gotten off into some, some strange doctrine. And when he was here that morning, he asked politely, may I share what the Lord's been doing in my life over the last several years since I left Calvary Hill? Graciously, Brother Ralph, our former pastor, agreed to let him have the pulpit. And he began to say some of the most outlandish things I have ever heard. I kept thinking that Brother Ralph was going to stop him. Brother Ralph, in those days, we sat up on the platform. So Brother Ralph was there. I was down on the front row. I was watching my pastor. He had his head down. He wasn't looking. But I know he was listening. 
And he had his Bible open, and every time some statement would be made, he'd turn in that Bible, and I'm, and I'm thinking, are you going to stop him? Are you going to stop him? Well, he let him finish. Time, well, there was no longer time for him to preach his message. And the next week, he was out of town. So I remember asking him, would you please give me the opportunity to stand before the congregation and correct the falsehood that was proclaimed here? And he gave me that opportunity. Uh, I entitled that message, I'll never forget it, Bad Advice from a Good Friend. The guy that stood here and said all those false things, he was really wanting to help us. He was so happy, so encouraged. He thought he was going to help this congregation, but everything that came out of his mouth wasn't helpful. Quite the contrary. The second time I had opportunity to do that, I don't know how long I'd been the pastor here, but I was the one who invited the preacher who stood in this pulpit and said things that I couldn't believe were coming out of his mouth. This was a man that I respected. This was a man that I, I have books that he's written. I had to get up the next Sunday morning and say, well, you know, you heard this, but this is what the Bible says. It's never pleasant to have to do that. But if you're going to pastor the church, you better be prepared to do that. That's just how important the truth is. We do not have the luxury of standing up here and simply sharing our opinion. I mean, I think my opinions are wonderful. <laughs> I think my opinions are right. But I'm not called to preach my opinion. And neither is anybody else. And I am not called to make up my own truth, my own doctrine. You know, that's one of the comforting things about preaching the Word of God. I don't have to be, I don't have to create a message. I just have to put one together from what God has said. That's my responsibility. I don't have to get up here and wow you with some story, some fictional story from the, the, the depths of my creative mind. I'm supposed to share with you what God said. So, error must be confronted in the church, and it must be corrected in the church. Now, there are other times over the years when falsehood and really the names of those who spread it uh, have been mentioned from this pulpit. You're probably aware of some of the names that we've called, and I'm sure we'll continue to do that. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of names with you this morning, but not right at the moment. One of the primary roles of elders is to shepherd the flock of God. Maybe that is the primary role of the elder, to shepherd the flock of God and to safeguard them from wolves in sheep's clothing. There have always been wolves in sheep's clothing. There will always be wolves in sheep's clothing. They are hard to detect. But if you will listen, inevitably they will give themselves away because their words will contradict Scripture. 
You know why I want you to open your Bibles on Sunday mornings and listen to what I'm saying and follow along? Because if there ever comes a time when what I say to you from this pulpit clearly contradicts what the Word of God says, I need to be confronted. But as long as the words that I proclaim from this pulpit are in keeping with the words of Scripture, then the proclamation of God's Word simply needs to be embraced, obeyed, And followed. So let me read these words. Why it was so important for Titus to appoint these elders in the churches on the island of Crete. Paul writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, Paul's going to quote here, a a Cretan philosopher, a Greek named Epimenides. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, and he quotes him here, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then he makes this statement. It looks like it almost doesn't fit here, but we'll talk about it a little bit later. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Talking about the false teachers. Detestable. And and that word speaks specifically of being detestable in the sight of God. God detests a false teacher. They are disobedient. And that word or that phrase, unfit for any good work, can really be translated as disqualified. They should not be considered for a position of leadership within the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for faithful men who are called to preach the word of God, who stand behind their pulpits and proclaim the truth, not their own not their own ideas. Uh, they have no other agenda than yours. Father, I pray that that would always be true of me and anyone else who stands here in Calvary Hills pulpit to proclaim the word of God. May we always be devoted to your word, to instructing this congregation in sound doctrine. And may we be willing to confront error falsehood when it arises, and to rebuke it sharply as we are commanded here. So Lord, today open our hearts and minds to be able to to see the reality of falsehood, Father, and how it needs to be dealt with within the church. And I pray, Father, that you would just instill within us such a thankfulness for truth and those who uphold truth. 
And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From the way that Paul writes to Titus, there seemed to be a culture of falsehood within Crete. And again, from the quote uh, of Epimenides there, Cretans were known as liars. Uh, As a matter of fact, in ancient Greek literature, uh, the word came to be known as a liar. To Cretanize was to lie. And so there was this culture of falsehood that Titus was being left in to set things in order. And of course, first role was to appoint elders within the churches uh, to preach and teach sound doctrine and to confront those uh, who were out of order. That word insubordinate, there are many who are insubordinate. Again, that word means out of order. Uh, Its root word there means to be ordered. Uh, And this word means to be out of order, to be unruly, to be rebellious. Uh, In every church, not only on the island of Crete, but in every church, there are those who refuse to submit to the pastoral leadership that God has placed over them. You know, it's a difficult thing sometimes, I believe, for a pastor to get up and talk about the pastoral authority that he has within his church. We often talk about the authority of God's Word. I have said to you over the years multiple times that when we teach or preach the Word of God, and that doesn't mean Brother Neil or myself alone, it means each and every one of you. When you sit down and you share the gospel with someone, when you open your Bible and you say to them, well, look what the Word of God says. You are not, again, just sharing your opinion. Now, you may be accused of that. Some today may say, well, that's your opinion, and I'm not particularly interested in hearing it. But it's not your opinion. When you share the Word of God, you are sharing the authoritative Word of God. These are God's words. They are filled with authority. And so when I stand here before you, or Brother Neil stands here before you, we too are teaching and preaching with authority, the authority of God's Word that we are teaching and preaching from. But one of the things I think that often escapes modern congregations, and maybe it escaped those on the island of Crete as well, is that our authority extends beyond preaching and teaching God's Word. God has placed us here to lead. As a matter of fact, there are places in Scripture that describe the leadership role of the pastor as one who rules over the congregation. We Americans don't like to be ruled over, do we? I mean, that word just rubs us the wrong way. But the truth is, you need to understand that as your pastor, as your pastoral staff, the elders of this church serve with the authority of Almighty God. For your own well-being, you should listen to us when we preach. And when we lead in other capacities as well. God put us here to lead you. Uh, These false teachers that are being referred to here are described, first of all, as empty talkers. Empty talkers. These are people, these are those who are constantly speaking their mind 
and sharing their opinions. But according to God's word, their opinions are worthless, useless, of no help whatsoever. So what I have to do is I have to ask myself the question this morning, when I'm speaking to people, are my words helpful? Is what I'm saying to the person that I'm talking to, is it helpful? Or am I speaking it for some other reason? I know that when I speak the word of God, these words are helpful. If you will heed the word of God, it'll, it'll help you. But I, I talk a, a lot when I'm not in the pulpit. I don't talk as much as some. Huh? That woke him up. But I do talk a lot. I, I probably spend more time talking outside of the pulpit than I do behind the pulpit. And I have to ask myself this question when I'm talking, are my words helpful? Is what I'm saying meant to encourage and to edify? Or am I speaking for some other reason? I'm not the only one that needs to ask myself that question from time to time. We live in a culture of falsehood, just like the island of Crete. And we don't want to be among those who are considered insubordinate, those who are out of order, unruly, rebellious. We want to line up voluntarily under the leadership that God has placed over us. That's what we do as a church. That's what we are called to do as Christians. And I know it's not always easy to follow someone else's lead. You know, husbands are given authority within their homes. And wives, I, I read from Ephesians 5 every time I perform a wedding. That's probably why I don't get to perform many weddings anymore. <laughs> wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Do you know I've actually had young women, when I've talked to them about the ceremony for their own wedding, who have said, you know, I'd prefer that you leave that out. I've had to say that to more than a few of them, well, if I can't say that in your wedding, you need to find somebody else to officiate your, your ceremony. I don't know that anybody's ever taken me up on that yet. Uh, they always kind of give in at that point. But I'm telling you, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's often a snicker throughout the congregation when, when you mention wives submitting to their own husbands. For some reason, that kind of thought or talk has fallen out of favor in our modern era, and maybe it hasn't been in favor in any era. But just as wives are to submit to their husbands, churches are to submit to their pastors. And I know it's not always easy, but it's best. And I just want to assure you that as your pastor, as a pastoral staff, we seek to lead in ways that are good and helpful and encouraging. We seek to preach the word of God. The reason we work so hard at preaching and teaching is because we don't want anything that's not true being conveyed from this pulpit because I know some of you believe the things that I say. I'm so very thankful for that. So I try to always say the truth. But these false teachers, they're empty talkers. They love to express their opinion, but their words are foolishness. They are unhelpful. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, just to make the point. <clears throat> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, I will stand before the Lord one day and give an account for how I led this congregation. And if you don't think that doesn't 
make me think twice about the things that I do around here? Well, it does. I know that I will stand before the Lord and give an account of how I serve the Lord here at Calvary Hill. And then this admonition. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this, the writer of Hebrews said, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's in your best interest to submit to the leadership of this church and to joyfully follow us as we seek to do the truth of God's word. So not only are these false teachers empty talkers, but they're also described as deceivers. Now, we don't need a lot of explanation about what that word means. We know what it means. The words that they speak, the things that they say, simply fill the minds of those who listen to them with falsehood, with untruths. These words are not helpful. As a matter of fact, according to the the Word of God here, it says that they're upsetting whole families. They're teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach. Sometimes this is done, I, I believe sometimes this is done innocently in the sense that guys have embraced a false doctrine and they don't even realize it's a false doctrine and so they simply share what they have embraced. Others, however, and I believe that's what Paul is pointing to here, they knowingly share falsehood. They speak the words that will advantage themselves. They do it for shameful gain, all right? either to gain popularity or to grow a big church or maybe to uh, make themselves wealthy. But they're deceivers. They, they, they say things that are untrue. Again, they must be silenced. Uh, a particular problem evidently in the church here uh, on Crete, on the island of Crete, and really we hear about it throughout the early churches Uh, were those of the circumcision. These were Hebrew uh, believers, or at least professing believers. But they taught that Christianity, all right, they, they preached Christ, but they didn't stop with Christ and his finished work on the cross. They taught that it, in order to be saved, you must have Christ plus good works or, or ceremonial rituals specifically the, those of the circumcision. The Old Testament covenant for, or the Old Covenant for the Jews was that males on their eighth day of life were to be circumcised. That was the mark of the covenant. And so there were Jews in the early days of the church that professed to know Christ as Savior and Lord, preached the gospel, but added to the gospel this idea of circumcision. You have to have Christ and circumcision. Now, I don't know anybody out there that's preaching that today, But there are lots of people preaching that it's Christ and something else. And any time the gospel is a gospel of Christ and, it's a false gospel. There's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Christ. Those of the circumcision or Judaizers is what they were often called. They taught that the gospel must be supplemented with good works. And let me tell you, People continue to believe that falsehood today. Anyone who adds requirements for salvation 
to the finished work of Christ is a false teacher. It must be confronted and rebuked. You know, we've said over the years, there is room in our study of Scripture for us to discuss and even to disagree. Uh, if, if Neil and I were honest this morning, and we stood, and we are, uh, and we stood up here, I guess I'm, that's what, if we stood up here and honestly spoke about our beliefs concerning end times, eschatology, we'd have some disagreements. I might not see things exactly the way Neil sees things, and he wouldn't see things exactly the way I see things. But you know what? That's all right. That's okay. But when it comes to salvation, the way of salvation, there are what we would call line in the sand issues, and this is one of them. And anytime you add anything to the finished work of Christ, when salvation is gained by grace through faith in Christ, plus good works or something else, you've got a false gospel. And it must be stopped. Uh, corrected, I guess, is really the better word. Confronted and rebuked, even rebuked sharply. These are serious matters. These are matters of life and death. You know, the reality is most people out there in the world, <clears throat> they think, ah, oh, you know, those Christians, they're always debating and discussing and they take themselves so seriously. They don't see the point. But when it comes to salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, that's a serious matter. It's a life and death issue. We're not, we're not talking about some academic you know, consideration. We're talking about life and death. If you're going to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven on the new earth, that will come about because you've received Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord in this world and not through any other way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. People don't like to hear those kinds of statements, but Jesus made them, and we should embrace them. So we live in a culture of falsehood just like the Cretans did. Our responsibility as pastors within this body of Christ, and that's the thing, you know, so often we think when we think of opposition to the church and its work, we, we tend to think of people out there somewhere. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people in here. He's talking about people who come among us and profess to be one of us and then begin to teach these worthless, hurtful, destructive falsehoods. They must be silenced. I mean, again, doesn't need much explanation. Verse 11, they must be silenced for they're upsetting whole families. They're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Falsehood must be confronted. The health and well-being of families is at stake and individuals. The spread of false doctrine is always disruptive. False doctrine splits churches. It divides churches. You know, we talk about church splits sometime. Most church splits occur over something that has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. Somebody gets mad because forever we've had the piano over on this side of the auditorium and some pastor who must be out of his mind decided we're going to put the piano over here. Well, I'm leaving. That can't be Bible. 
can I just say that there is no scriptural teaching about what side of the pulpit or the, or the platform the piano needs to be on? It's just a matter of opinion. It's always been over there. That's probably where it's always going to stay. That's my opinion. The health and well-being of families is at stake when it comes to falsehood within the church. False doctrine divides us. And let me tell you, if there's one thing that God hates, it's those who sow discord among the brothers. All right? And if left to spread, this divisive, disruptive falsehood will end up being destructive. It'll destroy people. It'll destroy churches. So it must be corrected. You know, it wasn't that long ago we had somebody that visited our church and liked our worship style, liked the preaching, or at least we thought. And uh, he stayed. He continued to come back and visit week after week. And it wasn't long before we realized that he had some very different ideas about Scripture and the emphasis of Scripture than what we did. And, and this guy actually said to me, when, I don't know how many weeks it took him to get up the nerve to say this, but he came to me and he talked about my preaching and, and he, said, he said, you overemphasize the grace and love of God. I kind of was caught off guard. I looked at him, I said, I said I'm not sure that's possible to overemphasize the grace and the love of God. Uh, as we continued to talk, and I tried to understand better what his specific issue was, it turns out that he is one who believes that you can forfeit your salvation. So in emphasizing or in overemphasizing the grace and love of God, he felt as if I was saying to you on a regular basis, look, just live your life any way you want to. A little sin here, a little sin there, it's okay. You're under the blood of Jesus, you're safe. It doesn't matter how you live your life. And if anybody thinks that's what I've been preaching for 35 years, you need to come see me after the service. It matters how we live, doesn't it? So we find out that he believes and is telling people here and there in corners of this hall and that hall, they need to watch how they live because they could lose their salvation. After multiple attempts to convince him of the falsehood of that premise, showing him biblically, Neil talked to him, I talked to him, we all talked to him. He simply refused to line up under the pastoral authority of this church. And I remember on one night, we were standing talking in a doorway. Uh, he was on his way out. But he turned back one last time. He's going to give it one last shot. And he looked at me and he said, Brother James, he said, why don't you just consider me a prophet sent from God to correct your false doctrine. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know what? I don't know whether you're a prophet or not, but I do know this. I'm the pastor of Calvary Hill Baptist Church. And I have the responsibility of correcting false doctrine in this church, not you. 
I said, if you continue to embrace this belief, I said, you're never going to be happy here. You need to find another place to worship. And he did. I had hoped that we could reclaim him, restore him. But often it's just not possible. So you just have to let him go. Falsehood must be corrected. And it's the role of the pastor to do that. Then Paul talks about the character of falsehood. Let me just kind of finish up with this. He talks of devoting themselves to Jewish myths, the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Oh, let me, let me just talk about that verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What Paul is simply saying there is, is this. When he refers to the pure, he's speaking of Christians, genuine Christians. Genuine Christians are the only people on the planet that are genuinely pure, all right? This work of, that's what God does. He, he purifies our hearts, our consciences, our minds. Only God can do that. We can't do that for ourselves. We're not born with pure hearts and minds. So to the pure, all things are pure means this. No outward action can cause a genuine believer to become unclean. Jesus was accused of uncleanness. He and his disciples would often eat without first washing their hands. And the Pharisees noticed this and they said, oh, that's bad. You're, de you're defiled. You're defiling yourself. You eat without first washing your hands. Jesus said to them, look, nothing that goes into my body or the body of my disciples defiles us. Food is consumed and eliminated through the bodily processes. That, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. So to the pure, all things are pure means that, Christian, there's nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God, that will cause you to lose your salvation. All right? Should we be concerned about the things we do? Yes. But even when we fail miserably, will we lose our salvation? Will God cast us into outer darkness? No. Not for true believers. And then this idea of to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. That means that no outward action of a lost person can make them clean. People think, well, I'll just join the church. Oh, I'll get baptized. I'll give money to the church or I'll give money to some charitable organization, some good cause, and that'll make me right before God. There is no action that you can take as a lost person that will make you clean before God. God has to do this. And Jesus confronted the Pharisees and he said, you're like those cups and plates that you use in your rituals. You look beautiful on the outside. You're all shiny and clean. He said, but on the inside, you're full of corruption. Dead men's bones. You're like whitewashed sepulchers, he said. Pretty on the outside, but nothing but death and decay on the inside. He said to them, let me clean the inside. And the outside will become clean. False teachers have a hard time with such doctrines. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Oh, I mean, I don't want to forget this. I said I was going to name names this morning. <laughs> Years ago, I was home. I was watching television. I'd turn on, I was actually looking for a golf tournament. And I turned on the television, and it was on one of the religious stations. And uh, there was this group of men sitting around in a circle. And I, I, I noticed one of them, and I thought, well, that's Oral Roberts. 
older man. Anyway, so I sat there for a moment and I listened. And uh, Benny Hinn and Jesse Duplantis and several of them were all sitting there. And they were asking the old, you know, wise Oral Roberts questions. And somebody brought up something about the way that Christians often behave. You know, some of the meanest people I, I think it was Jesse Duplantis. Some of the meanest people I know are Christians. And Benny Hinn kind of took that seriously, and he looked down at Oral Roberts. He said, you know, Brother Oral, he said, why is it? You know, Brother Jesse's right. Why is it that sometimes Christians are so mean? And, and, and it seems that often the, the lost world out there are kind and gracious. And Oral Roberts took a deep breath, and he said, well, you know, brothers, <clears throat> he said, I have found in my ministry that sometimes lost people have a purer heart than Christians. And Benny Hinn sat back. And he said, that is powerful. And I said, that is nonsense. Lost people don't have pure hearts. Their hearts are wicked, defiled, desperately wicked, the scripture says. Who can know them? Only God can give you a pure heart. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. People who profess to know God ought to live faithful lifestyles, right? We ought to live lives worthy of our gospel calling. Sin should become less and less frequent in our lives, and I believe less and less severe. I mean, we ought to, we ought to get to the point where we're confessing smaller and smaller sins and less and less of them. So we should live lives that are characterized by faithfulness, obedience to the Word of God. So these men, of course, often didn't do that. They professed to know Christ and then lived any way they wanted to. As a matter of fact, Epimenides said they're, they're, they're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. An evil beast is one who just lives for his own satisfaction, selfishly lives to, to satisfy himself without caring about anybody around him. A, a lazy glutton. That, those words literally are translated an unemployed stomach. These are people who love to eat, but they hate to work. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. But then there are also those, I think this idea of denying, them by their, denying God by their works is that rather than just living ungodly lives, outwardly immoral or ungodly lives, what they do rather than that is they teach that you have to work to keep your, your salvation. They depend upon their own performance to keep themselves right before God. Let me tell you, if you get into that ugly rut, you'll never be happy. You'll never experience the joy of God. If you think that somehow every day you've got to get up and perform in order for God to maintain his love for you, you're, you're, you're headed for sorrow, despair. So these false teachers trust in their own good works to save them. And Teach that others should do the same. So men like these, according to Paul, they're not to be trusted. They should never be given positions of authority within the church. According to God, as I mentioned a moment ago, they are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. Disqualified for serving as a leader within the church. So let me just, let me just close. I, I don't know there's a whole lot more we can say about this. Do this for me. Pray for me. Pray for the pastoral leadership of your church. Pray for the elders of this congregation. Pray for us. We're men. We're human beings. We struggle. We get discouraged. 
We have wrong opinions sometimes, wrong ideas. Pray for us. But also, follow us. That's what God put us here for, for you to follow us. We want what's best for you. I I just want to assure you of that again. Whether it's preaching the word of God from this pulpit, whether it's the programs that we put in place in this church, whether it's how we schedule our services, we want what's best for you. Our goal is never to, to hurt you or to disappoint you. Always to encourage. Pray for us. Again, listen to us as we preach and teach God's word. If you have questions about what you hear us say, come ask us. You know, one of the biggest problems that I've seen over the years in the church is people think they heard something, and all of a sudden we're hearing all over the church that everybody's talking about what was said in the Sunday morning service, and most of the time we find out it really wasn't said at all. And if something like it was said, there's a simple explanation of what was meant by what was said. So if you hear something that you don't think sounds right, come talk to me. I'll I'll talk to you. I'll listen. And then again, follow the leadership of this church. And let me just say, I believe that this church has always been a church that's followed its leadership. And I just want to make sure that it will always be that kind of church. God places pastors, elders here to lead this congregation. And that's their responsibility. Your responsibility is to line up voluntarily under their leadership.